Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Judith Edge tells us about William Morris. Many of us think of his wallpaper designs, but how many of us know that he was also a poet, an artist, a novelist, a printer, a translator, and a leading socialist? Um, Why did I choose William Morris? Because I've always been interested in art. And I apologise in advance, because probably some of you, lots of you, know a lot more than I do about him. But I was very interested because in recent years, in retirement, I visited some of these places, which probably a lot of you have. That is, I went to Kelmscott and fell in love with it, as he did. And I visited the Red House in Bexley Heath, which is so peculiarly set among a rather ordinary suburb now in the middle of Bexley Heath. And I've read a a bit about him and visited exhibitions. But I don't know about you, but I also chose wallpapers William Morris wallpapers in the 70s for the houses we lived in because I liked them and and probably because it was fashionable. And by the way, you probably found if you looked up William Morris that every time you put his name into the computer, you get hundreds and hundreds of companies still selling his designs, presumably out of copyright, but you have to trawl down an awful long way till you get anything about man. This is testament to his longevity, his designs are still out there being sold by many, many firms. So my real fountain of wisdom for this talk is this massive tome of 700 pages by Fiona McCarthy that I got involved in reading. And I did actually read it all except some of the bits about the poetry, because one of the things you do find out is that in his own time, he was as famous, if not more famous for his poetry than for anything else. But I tend to agree with Claire Tomlin, who reviewed McCarthy's book, and she was, like I was, a bit fed up with the amount of poetry description in it, and she described his poetry as flaccid and fuzzy to modern ears. So I've used that book extensively, as well as other sources I'll, I'll list later. But most people have read about him as a designer, but once you start looking at his life, you'll find he was a lot of other things as well. And I call this Morris and Company not just because of the design company, but because it encompasses quite a few facets of his life. So Morris and Company is his family, very large family. Morris and Company, the company he kept, all his relationships with all the pre-Raphaelites, which you probably know something about. But also it's Morris and Co, meaning Morris and Comrades because of his later enthusiasm and devotion to the socialist cause. The picture of him, we've got him looking very tired, but very impressive. A self-portrait from when he was quite young. And typically, he didn't flatter himself, did he? He looks rather sullen and a bit unsure of himself. But that is, I think, the earliest picture I could find of him. I'm just going on to a little bit about his background and where he came from and his influences. So we'll see how he came to be the man he was. He was born into an ordinary bourgeois style of comfort, as he put it. He was the third child and first son to survive after an older brother died after living only for a few days. There were six other children born after him and two older sisters born before him. So there were nine children in all. And it was a, a narrow setting of commercial endeavor and not a promising beginning for a lover of beauty and the visual arts. According to Morris himself, this love must have been inborn since none of his relatives had any sense of it. Elm House in Walthamstow is demolished, which was his stomping ground, really. Much more rural than it is now, obviously. Elm House, it was not grand, but definitely a gentleman's residence. And he was a cosseted child, possibly because he was the first son and the older child had died. Later, his, his energy belied the fact he was not as robust as he seemed. 
his mother was prone to seizures, and of that more, more will be said later on. He couldn't remember being taught to read. I was a great devourer of books from a very early age. He claimed he'd read all of Scott's novels by the age of seven. He was six when the family moved eastward to Woodford Hall because his father was making a lot of money. It also demolished, unfortunately, an imposing Georgian mansion next to Epping Forest, 50-acre park and land beyond, £600 in rent. It always amazes me that these Victorian people tended to rent rather than buy. It's so opposite to what happens nowadays. He was doing very, very well, his father was. It was a wonderful place to grow up. They were allowed to roam around the park and, and the land and allowed to go fishing, which is the only sport he ever liked, and later shooting, and they were allowed to roast what they bagged for supper. He felt at home in the kitchens and the gardens as protected places, and he also had his own small garden, the first of many. One of the books in his father's library was a very old book, 1597, which was an encyclopedic study with meticulous drawings of plant forms and resemblance to Morris's later designs. And he would be looking at that book and studying it from a very early age by choice. It was a reassuring household. He was a happy child. His father took him on expeditions. He was given a miniature suit of armour. He was in love with knights and armour and chivalry from a very early age. He rode around on his Shetland pony wearing his armour. But these were early days, but there were issues. His relationship with his mother was always problematic. There was love on both sides, but little understanding. He hated his family's narrow evangelical religion and Sundays were dreaded. He became good at pursuing his own interests and disappearing off. At Woodford, he had his first glimpses of the tributaries of the Thames, to which he was drawn all his life. And also, Epping Forest was very important to him. Epping Forest has got the biggest ancient hornbeam woodland in Europe. Forest had a, a large part to play in his life, and Epping was much bigger than it is now. Later, he fought a campaign to save it from developers in the 1890s. He defended its wildness. We want a thicket, not a park in Epping Forest. He loved birds and knew a lot about them. From a very early age, he took an interest in buildings, particularly churches. He was taken by his father to Canterbury Cathedral when he was about eight, and he never forgot the impact the building had on him. He told Wilfred Blunt he thought the gates of heaven had opened to him. It had a very strong emotional impact. He only had to look at a cathedral such as Peterborough to feel he had himself been one of the builders. With emotions so strong as almost to be insane, he identified himself with the building and its creators. He was sent to a board locally at a school, Miss Arundel's Academy for Young Gentlemen, when he was nine. He'd just been taught by his sisters and the odd governess up to then. And he was 10 before he was taught to write, which I thought was interesting. My parents did, as all right people do, shook off the responsibility of my education as soon as they could, first to nurses, then to grooms and gardeners, and then to a school, a boy farm, I should say. He had little time for his father's city financial activities. It was bill broking, which is a sort of investment banking and arranging of loans before banks offered loans or overdrafts. His father made even more profitable investments in West Country copper mines, and he was even more ashamed of those because of the exploitation of labor and the spoiling of the countryside. He wrote a scathing piece in Commonweal which was the journal he founded, the Socialist Journal, edited by himself and mostly written by himself, <laughs> describing how a young boy is at home for the holidays and his father's accusing him of doing nothing, as fathers often do. The son turns on his father and says, what do you do, Pa, when you're not having a holiday? He reminds him of the day he spent with his father in his city office the Christmas before. His father's so-called work consisted of reading the paper, chastising the clerks who did what work there was to do, writing a letter and having a luxurious lunch with a client before going home. So that's obviously from personal experience of his father's activities. And then at the end, he has the father going off muttering to himself. He says, I wonder what will happen to that boy. Suppose he should turn socialist when he grows up. So that was his attitude to his father. That was his early situation. His father's investments were getting into trouble 
and his father, perhaps fortunately, died quite early, age 50, because I could imagine all sorts of problems ahead for William and his father. And it may be William underestimated the stress of his work because he had lost a lot of money and the family had to retrench and they had to move to a smaller home. It's in the middle of a rather grubby street in Walthamstow and it's absolutely beautiful. And that's the William Morris Museum now. The grounds are still open to the public, which he would approve of. The back of it, it's absolutely delightful. But as I said, in the middle of scrubby Walthamstow. Okay, they were still rich, but a lot less so. He was always embarrassed, Morris was, by the fact of his inherited wealth. And he tried to give some of it away to his friends and distribute money, apart from spending on himself. A lot of his friends got his money and the causes he espoused. Not long before his father died, he bought, I don't quite understand what the word is, the nomination to Marlborough College, which was a very new public school. So that's where William went in 1848. He was only about five years old. He was nicknamed Crab. He was remembered for making nets to catch fish and birds for hours at a time. Very obsessive type person. He was also teased for his eccentricity in reply to which he would rush roaring with his head down and his arms whirling wildly at his tormentors. Later, even his close friends seemed to delight in teasing him. We'd say winding him up these days to the point of sending him into a frenzy, which was quite easy to do. It was a totally wild place, Marlborough College. If you read about these public schools in that period, it's absolutely appalling what what they were subjected to. There was a regime of terror that was surpassing even Winchester, apparently. Order was kept by caning, flogging and birching. A culmination of all of this was the Great Rebellion at Marlborough in 1851. Probably weren't that bothered about the Great Exhibition at Marlborough at that time. The boys were rioting, there were fireworks, there were fires set off. They were going on strike, they were pursuing the masters. And although he was very pleased to be taken away, Morris instinctively was anti-authoritarian, but he was very uneasy about the anarchy, particularly the boys' attacks on local people going about their business. So he's happy to be withdrawn to study at home for Oxford. I have to tell you about his eccentricities, which remind me a bit of Samuel Johnson when you read about them. He was so addicted to winding his legs tightly around legs of chairs that he put pressure on them and they would collapse. His jerks and antics were peculiar. He had a physical compulsion to break out and cavort and career around like an out-of-control child. We would say he had difficulty with anger management these days. Some people have suggested he suffered from Tourette's and others that his anger was a form of epilepsy, which he couldn't control. But it was never directed at others and often take the form of thumping himself very violently in the head. He went up to Exeter College in 1853. He fell in love with the city, but not the university. Oxford was still a medieval city and he was in love with medievalism. It was still intact, although a city in transition with the railways that had arrived in 1844. He was disappointed in the college. A system so languid as almost to be corrupt, he said. A huge upper public school was very contemptuous about public schools. There were two communities. Probably it's always been the same. It was ever thus. The reading men and the fast set. He hated the arid, pompous teaching. He attended very few lectures and went off and did his own studying, mostly at the buildings in Oxford and hands-on history. Probably the most important thing about Oxford was that he made friends for life, among them Edward Byrne Jones, who was a very retiring in lots of ways, very diffident. He was hard up, relatively speaking, from Birmingham, and Morris was embarrassed by this and offered to share his allowance with him, but Byrne Jones refused. It was his first really intimate friend. They were both supposed to be destined for the church, as all the people at Exeter were, but they were both pursuing other things, although at first they were very devout and spent a lot of time reading religious works. They went through a phase of wearing purple trousers. You could imagine that being symbolic. Both were attracted by Arthurianism, and Tennyson and Mallory were their gods. Byrne's description of Morris shows how much he was impressed by him. 
It was at Byrne Jones at Oxford who first saw Morris's quality, saying he was certain Morris would be a star. At the end of their first year, Burns Jones described him as one of the cleverest fellows I know. He is full of enthusiasm for things holy and beautiful and true, and what is rarest, of the most exquisite perception and judgment in them. For myself, he has tinged my whole inner being with the beauty of his own, and I know not a single gift for which I owe such gratitude to heaven as his friendship. If it were not for his boisterous mad outbursts and freaks, which break the romance he sheds around him, at least to me, he would be a perfect hero. And they remain friends to life, but they did have their ups and downs later. Around Byrne Jones were a group of people that he knew from Birmingham, William Fulford, Richard Watson, Dixon and Charles Faulkner. They were closer to industrial realities and social things than Morris. They called themselves the Brotherhood. They had this whole thing about having a community and creating a new society. They were an intellectual reading set keen to extract from medieval England those elements from which the Victorians could learn. They wanted to establish new societies based on equality of classes, a small-scale quasi-monastic system of community, the return to the country, the revival of physical activity, principles of shared work, architecture as the measure of civilization, and so on and so on. It reminded me a bit of Tolstoy, all that list. It's strange how across continents the same ideas are springing up. The ideas of Charles Kingsley appealed to them. They began to see themselves as young men on a mission. 1855, Morris came of age and inherited his shares, which made him comfortable for probably the rest of his life, although there were ups and downs there as well. The Brotherhood came under the influence of Ruskin. In the Victorian period, if you read anything about it, you, you can't avoid Ruskin, really, not that you want to, but not that I've read much in the original. They liked to read to each other, and Morris particularly liked declaiming Ruskin to the rest of them. Morris, the omnivorous reader, was already familiar with the two published volumes of Ruskin's Modern Painters before he came to Oxford, but the second volume of The Stones of Venice, published in 1853, was an Oxford book, the Oxford book of that whole period, when the reading of Ruskin seemed to Morris to have been a sort of revelation. And this is what he said. When he printed the Ruskin, one of the first of the Kelmscott Press editions, he explained the great impact it had on him. In future days, it will be considered as one of the very few necessary and inevitable utterances of the century. To some of us, when we first read it, it seemed to point out a new road on which the world should travel. One of the things about Ruskin that they were persuaded by, he challenged the traditional view a designer should not also be a maker. It doesn't ring true even nowadays in our English society, the separation between intellectual activity and physical work. A working man ought to be thinking and the thinker often to be working and both should be gentlemen in the best sense. Having travelled to France with a group of his friends from Oxford and visited various cathedrals there, Morris decided to change his mind about his career not that he was very serious about going into the church anyway. It was on this trip that he and Edward Byrne-Jones decided to renounce their intention to take holy orders and devote their lives to art. Towards the end of his time in Oxford, he, he found he could write poetry, just like that. Much to my own amazement, and about that time, being intimate with other young men with enthusiastic ideas, we got up a monthly paper which lasted, to my cost, for a year. It was called the Oxford and Cambridge Magazine and was very young indeed. So he's decided to become an architect. He's writing his poetry very enthusiastically and reading it out to his friends. And he decides to get articled, if you like, to G.E. Street, who is a well-known architect in Oxford. 1856, this is. He decided to pursue architecture. He wrote to his mother. You can imagine what she felt about all this after an acrimonious discussion, telling her to pay the premium for his pupillage himself. Street was very well regarded, and he was particularly important for church buildings. Morris joined the company, and he was supervised by one Philip Webb, who later wrote accounts of Morris's behaviour, which were a combination of violence and scattiness, apparently. The, the combination of tedium and discipline drove him mad, although he did come under the influence of Street in certain respects. Street believed in handwork, 
and felt that any architect should be able to decorate his buildings with paintings and sculpture. An architect should be a blacksmith, a textile worker, and a designer of stained glass. Morris began modeling in clay, wood carving, and stone carving. He was also making the first of his many, many, many illuminated manuscripts. In 1856, Street's practice moved to London. Morris moved with it. Burne Jones was already there, engaged to Georgie MacDonald, about which you'll hear more later, and they planned to find rooms together. And at this point, Gabriel Rossetti enters the scene. This is William Morris himself writing later. On being introduced by Burne Jones, the painter, who was my great college friend, to Dante Gabriel Rossetti, the leader of the Pre-Raphaelite School, I made up my mind to turn painter. I don't know what his mother thought of that. But anyway, he had the money to do, to some extent, what he wanted. And these were happy days. He started practicing with Edward Burne Jones and having a wonderful time with Rossetti, very impressed with the whole pre-Raphaelite scene. And they were involved in Oxford frescoes. Benjamin Woodward was commissioned by Ruskin to build a debating hall for the Union Society in Oxford in the revived Gothic style. And he planned a gallery with all these windows and he wanted space to be covered in frescoes. So he had these links with Rossetti and Rossetti had these links with Morris and Burne Jones as the other Oxford people. And they came along, and this was their first commission, if you like, to paint frescoes on the Union building. They chose themes from Mort Dartha. Great fun was had by all. You can imagine they were all in their 20s, all mucking about, basically. Much drinking, particularly by the youthful Swinburne, who attached himself to the party. There were complaints from neighbours about the noise and the cavorting. There's an early illustration of Morris's obsession with all things medieval, a bassinet incident. I could have got you a picture of bassinet, but never mind. Bassinet is the medieval helmet, and they needed one in order to draw one accurately on these frescoes. And so Morris designed one and then had it made. And there's this story where he appeared with it on, but when he put it on, he couldn't get it off. And everybody else was prancing about, trying, and he was roaring, as they always described him as roaring as they were trying to get it off. But it was one of the first things he actually designed from scratch, this metal bassinet. Unfortunately, they didn't know much about how to create frescoes and the difficulties of temperate painting. And they painted straight onto whitewashed walls. And within a year, the frescoes had faded. Nevertheless, Morris was on the high. He published his first book of poetry, which wasn't very well received, but he didn't mind because he was in love. He met his love, Jane Burden. Did decide later he wasn't going to be a painter, but he said, I love you, but I can't paint you on the back of one of his drawings of her or one of his paintings. He probably gave up partly because of that, but she was 17 years old, the daughter of a livery stable keeper and the ideal of pre-Raphaelite theories of feminine perfection. Henry James described her as an apparition of fearful and wonderful intensity. Imagine a tall, lean woman in a long dress of some dead purple stuff with a mass of crisp black hair heaped in great wavy projections on each side of her temples, a thin, pale face and a pair of strange, sad, deep, dark eyes. William Morris married her. You can think of quite a few Victorian middle-class and upper-middle-class men who would have taken her as, as their mistress, but he didn't. He was undoubtedly choosing a, an anti-establishment bohemian path by now, which his father would be turning in his grave. Since graduating from Oxford, he didn't shave nor cut his hair, which made his nickname Topsy very appropriate. He was definitely setting himself outside the bounds of respectable society, but he didn't care. He was deeply in love, though she later confessed she never loved him. There was no way a girl in her situation could refuse. She got an education, she learned to play the piano, she read widely and developed great skill herself as an embroiderer. If you look up her entry in Wikipedia, it lists her as an embroiderer. Her life was completely transformed by her marriage, but she comes across as solemn and sad in both appearance and behaviour, whereas Morris was exuberant and loud. Clearly, they were not well matched in lots of ways. However, happy days. The house that Morris commissioned for Philip Webb his friend from Street's architecture firm, to build for him and Janie in Bexley Heath, which was then a small hamlet of Upton, 10 miles from central London, finished in 1860. It was his dream dwelling. He described it as very medieval in spirit. He was to live there for five years. 
It was built with respect to its materials that recommended it to modern movement architects in the 1930s. It was plain and functional, beautiful and homely, but also playful. And it was Philip Webb's first job as an architect. An orchard of old apple and cherry trees surrounded it. And that was why William Morris chose the plot because he was always in love with orchards and gardens. Rossetti described it as a noble work in every way. They kept house all their friends they all came and there were frequent visitors and there was all these young people in their 20s creating things and making things and having fun together and the Oxford Union fresco people would come down at weekends oh the joys of those Saturdays to Mondays they felt as they were they were coming home it was the most beautiful sight in the world to see Morris coming up from the cellar before dinner beaming with joy with his hands full of bottles of wine and others tucked under his arm while they were there, the idea of the firm was born. Burne Jones wrote, the idea came to him of beginning a manufacture of all things necessary for the decoration of a house. Webb had already designed some beautiful glass, metal candlesticks and tables for the red house, and I had already designed several windows for churches. So the idea grew of putting our experience together for the service of the public. Just as with the Oxford and Cambridge magazine, it was Morris who put up most of the money and did most of the work. But whereas the magazine died unmourned, the firm grew and prospered. Nicholas Pepner described its success as marking the beginning of a new era in Western art. Morris, Marshall and Faulkner launched in 1861. As well as Webb and Oxford, the founder members were Rossetti, the painter Ford Maddox Brown, and Peter Paul Marshall, who was a friend. One of the first products, Morris was always looking for inspiration for his designs. And one of his most famous ones, the trellis one, was taken from some flowers in the Red House. Family and friends were drawn into creating artefacts for the firm. And when the International Exhibition in Kensington, 1862, I think it was meant to be 1861, like the original one was 1851, but there was something wrong in Italy and it was 1862. They held their first exhibition of their goods and they had their detractors, but they sold £150 worth of goods. It was the beginning of the end of his painting career. Firm being his business, if you like, being his work rather than architecture and rather than painting. Club-like atmosphere at the beginning, although it was founded on the fact that one of the mathematicians from Oxford, Charlie Faulkner, became the firm's accountant. And Morris was the business manager and he sold some of his shares in the Devon consoles, which his mother and sisters and brothers thought a mad thing to do in order to raise capital. So if you like, it was he that got the whole thing off the ground. I've got a little description. Max Beerbohm, you may remember his name, did a radio programme which included a sketch he wrote of Morris. Morris is the salesman because Morris turned out to be quite a good salesman and had quite a taste for selling himself and his wares. It was this imperious side of Morris as a designer that appealed to Max Beerbohm who recreated the Morris at that period when he was calling on a client. Charlie Faulkner was with him and he wrote this radio program about this. This is his sketch. The narrator, a gentleman with a taste for parquet, is bludgeoned with ideas in his own drawing room in Chelsea. This is Morris. We'll let you have everything at 2% above cost of production by Jiminy because we're blooming beginners and you're our friend. Hooray! I've got all the designs in my head now. He struck his forehead a violent blow with his fist. I see your whole blessed room for you, all clear before me. Yeah, there, and a settle along this wall, and Burn Jones will do the stained glass for your window, and Ford Maddox Brown will do the panels of the settle. And there's a young chap called William de Morgan who'll do the tiles for the hearth, and my wife shall embroider the edges of the window curtains. You know that green surge you've got? Glorious. And by Jove, will. But here he slipped and sat with a terrific crash on the parquet. That's just what I was about to go and speak about, he continued. This isn't a floor, it's a sheet of ice. It won't do. We must have good, honest, rough oaken boards with bulrushes, strewn bulrushes, and we'll have... One moment, Morris, I begged. When you say we, do you mean simply yourself and Faulkner and the company, or do you include me? But of course I include you, he said. Why, hang it all, the room's yours. That's just what I was beginning to doubt. That is him, in full flood, in his sales pitch. 
those days at the Oxford Union and then the Red House with the children and all the people coming and the creation of the firm, those were the happy days. You can look back on his life and think that as we can, one can on one's own life and think, oh, those are the good days, if you like. Because now it was fairly clear from 1865 onwards, Jamie and Rossetti were in a relationship that Morris had to tolerate. You probably have heard of Rossetti's wife, Lizzie Siddle, dying probably of an overdose and Rossetti burying his poems with her in the grave and then later changing his mind and exhuming them. That's a famous story about Rossetti. But basically it's quite clear that Rossetti was pretty jealous of William Morris. But anyway, there was Morris with his two children, this gorgeous wife, and there was he with nothing. And so from 1865 onwards, Janie and Rossetti were in a relationship that Morris had to tolerate of setting up a community at the Red House, which is what he'd originally wanted to do. Burne Jones and his family were supposed to be joining them, but there was illness and death in Burne Jones' family, and he got cold feet, decided not to come. And so the Red House project never materialised into this community brotherhood of workers and craftsmen and thinkers that Morris had envisaged. I think he had this idea like you'd have a hub these days, that was his idea, but he had to abandon it particularly because of this situation with Janie and Rossetti. I will have to just quote Georgina MacDonald, who said about Red House afterwards many years, some of us saw it in our dreams for years afterwards, as one does a house only in childhood. Before he moved, however, from the Red House, he embarked on the vast narrative, which was to make him for a decade the most popular poet of the period and eventually put him in the running for Poet Laureate. Called the Earthly Paradise, it took five years, 1865 to 70. It was his homage to Chaucer, and it had a prologue linking 24 stories to different narrators, which is why it was incredibly long. I attempted to read some of his poetry, but to be honest, I gave up very, very quickly. He actually was revered as a poet in his own time, and afterwards, he was always referred to as the author of The Earthly Paradise, not as the designer or the artist or anything. He wrote very fast and at an inordinate length. Suffice it to say that I agree with Claire Tomlin, who described it as fuzzy and flaccid. If his reputation had depended on his poetry, we wouldn't have heard of him today, that's all I can say. Maybe it's the subject of someone's obscure PhD, for want of a better subject, but we're leaving that out of the account for now. He did have a lot of time on his hands, the Victorians seemed to have stupendous energy, and he filled it. But what he did then, because of the situation with Janie and Rossetti and because he had to give up the Red House, he decided to find somewhere to rent in the country. The renting of Kelm Scott House. In the early summer of 1871, he began looking for a little house out of London. He made some excuse connected with the health of his children, but the real reason was an attempt to find a modus vivendi for himself, Janie and Rossetti, and give a veneer of respectability to the triangular relationship so that they could appear to be brother artists and partners in the firm. He turned to it because it's a little village near the river. He always was in love with rivers. A heaven on earth, he described it, and such a garden. Close down on the river, a boathouse and all things handy. He and Rossetti took Kelmscott on a joint tenancy in 1871. He specified the wallpapers and left Philip Webb with instructions for renovation. And then he left for Iceland. What's Iceland got to do with anything you say to yourself? Well, it's because he was fascinated with myths and legends from a very Celtic legends, Roman legends. He wrote his translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey later on. He was fascinated with his ancient stories, if you like, of people and their problems overcome by chivalry and honesty and bravery. It was something about that, I think. In Iceland, he wanted to get away from it all. You can say he wanted to find himself. You can say, like these people who decide that they're going to have a sabbatical and travel world. He obviously had to get away from Jamie and Rossetti, and he took himself off, and he actually wrote a farewell letter saying, be well and happy, he said to Jamie. You can't help but feel he was a rather noble man. He liked the harshness of the Old Norse literature, he saw it as a good corrective to what he called the maundering side of medievalism, which is maundering is talking or acting in an idle, dreamy manner. I feel he fell out of love with this romantic pre-Raphaelite bit, finding it very unsatisfactory and realising that it wasn't going to do. And he wanted something else. 
So off he goes to Iceland. It was a two-month trip, and he went with somebody called Magnusson, would you believe, who was the son of a poor parson from Iceland who'd come to England to supervise the printing of the Icelandic New Testament. William Morris had been reading Icelandic within, as you do, and working his way through the sagas, learning the language at the same time. These stories of the heroic figures of Iceland in the 10th and 11th century had been passed down orally in written versions compiled from the 13th century. He responded to the laconic nature of the saga and their powerful narratives. He identified with the defiant spirit and unflinching sense of duty. That makes sense. Magnuson said he found on every page an echo of his own buoyant, somewhat masterful mind. He did everything with passion. He wrote a journal of this two-month journey, and I was going to quote you a little bit, because it's wonderful, actually. It's much better than his poetry. <laughs> I've only read bits, but I don't think I've got the time now. Anyway, you have a look at his journal. It's rather marvellous. They were on horseback doing this travelling, and he was the cook. They took their provisions with them, and he was the cook, and he enjoyed doing it. You can see this practical man enjoying making scratch meals and, and cooking, and it was a very, very hard... If you've been to Iceland, I've never been tempted because of the weather, but if you're actually on horseback travelling for six weeks, you can imagine it was. he lost a lot of weight, which is probably very good for him, and he was so impressed, particularly Icelandic houses the traditional turf-walled Icelandic houses. It, it appealed to his sense of there being something functional and beautiful in its functionality. So he had a rather wonderful time despite the difficulties. It was when he was in Iceland that he started forming some of his political views because up to that point, he hadn't, apart from wanting things to be beautiful and useful, he hadn't really been very political. This is the political conclusion he came to after Iceland. The most grinding poverty is a trifling evil compared with the inequality of the classes. So that's what Iceland did for him. He returns and he was now, if you like, reinvigorated, revived. And some people said he came back with a, a ruthlessness, which he hadn't before, perhaps because he'd been hardened by suffering, if you like. And he came back to Kelmscott, which... The closest thing to love in his life afterwards, apart from his daughters, is the object of his deepest affection. Although he never owned it, he never lived there permanently and only rented it. He found the architectural rightness satisfying. But then he starts to decide that he wants to dye his materials himself for the drapes, for the curtains, for the tapestries. And he goes to leak. Because having started his own experiments in vegetable dyeing in the Queen's Square... He wanted to use the vats at Thomas Wardle's factory in Leek in order to experiment. Thomas Wardle said he never met a man who knew so much about colour. He did many years of study of the colour in painting and ancient textiles. I discovered that Morris had a subscription to the first edition of Owen Jones's Book of Ornamentation, and it was sold by subscription so that they could keep the money coming in because it's obviously so costly to make. And it spread out the cost and, and they got the money back. So he spent many happy hours in the vats himself, apparently turning blue. He wanted to expand the firm and he was satisfied with the standards of machine work. Don't get the idea that William Morris was against machines. He was not against machines if they produced the quality that he wanted, but he objected to those standards of dyeing in the, in the trade. And he had to find the techniques of dyeing, which at the old techniques, he had to go by, back to the old methods of organic dyeing, which were being abandoned in favour of new chemical dyes, aniline dyes derived from coal tar. Their colours were harsh and precarious and liable to fade. So he sets himself to learn dyeing from scratch with the help of Thomas Wardle and his vats, the dyes that he used. And he wrote the instructions very, very carefully. And at this time, he also developed his views on the division of labour, about how workmen should be allowed to take control of their activities. He must be allowed to think of what he's doing and vary his work as the circumstances of it vary. He must have a voice and a voice worth listening to in the whole affair. He used stippling to give a three-dimensional effect. Somebody was visiting his workshop, remembers the scene, when a fashionably dressed young man, on finding Morris occupied in painting all the dots on a pattern, asked him why this was not a job he could delegate. Morris answered, do you think I'm such a fool as to let another fool have the fun of doing the spotting when I have had the grind of doing the design? 
Colour and pattern is what his design is concerned with, exuberance and beauty. And just as a little side issue, in Leek, there was founded the School of Leek Embroidery by Mrs Wardle, which still exists right up to very recently. And throughout Leek in Staffordshire and local churches, there are lovely legacies of the profusion of Morris's style of embroiderers because he influenced those people while he was living there. 1870s, just some other activities of this man. He was approached as the possible successor to F.C. Doyle as the professor of poetry at Oxford. But there were two candidates, Swinburne and Morris. Swinburne was discarded on moral grounds, but he turned it down. The practice of art rather narrows the artist in regard to the theory of it, he said. And then he said to his daughter, I was born not to be the chairman of anything. But for many hours of his later life, he spent time in meetings, chairmanships, secretaryships and treasuryships. And the next activity is the Society for the Preservation of Historic Buildings. The idea of a watchdog body to preserve the fabric of the nation's buildings was influenced by Ruskin's Seven Lamps of Architecture. It used to drive William Morris literally mad to see buildings being taken down or buildings being deformed by sham stuff, if you like. He argued that in the past, church buildings have been added to in the style prevailing at the time. The effect of somewhat ramshackle was genuine, as opposed to what he called sheer fakery. He saw some Victorian Gothic carvings once. They were added to, like in recent times, Victorian times, onto a, an original building. And he said he could do better with his teeth. He made a distinction between the old and the sham old. He fought against the restoration of Tewkesbury Abbey, and later, this is interesting, a famous campaign against the restoration of St. Mark's in Venice. The Eastern Question Association was formed and the first national meeting was in 1876. And of course, prominent among them was Morris. Among them was C. Morris, Trevelyan, John Ruskin, Charles Darwin, Robert Browning, Andrew Trollope and Gladstone. So they were all working against this warmongering of the Israelis and William Morris wrote about it. He was already beginning to write things appealing to the working class as seeing, trying to persuade them that they should rise up against these Tories and stop the war and not be beguiled into um, going to war on behalf of these people. Eventually, Disraeli managed to slide out of it at the Congress of Berlin, but it gave Morris a complete political apprenticeship because he attended so many public meetings about it. On the home front, there were some good news and some terrible news. No, I'll give you the good news first. On the one hand, Janie had more or less given up on Rossetti, whose behaviour was becoming more, more erratic under the influence of chloral, and maybe there was a hint of a problem with his behaviour towards May, Morris's younger daughter. But the tragic news involved Jenny, the older girl. She started to suffer at the age of 15, epilepsy. She's a very, very clever girl, the much more academic of the daughters, and was supposed to be going to one of these new ladies' colleges, like maybe Girton College, founded by a friend of the family, Barbara Bodichon. All the family's hopes and plans for her future were dashed when at the age of 15 she experienced her first fit. There was little medical science could do at the time. The illness was very frightening, and those who suffered were stigmatised never be able to live an independent life or fulfil any of the promise of her early years. And as parents, Janie and w William were devastated. They were united in their love for their daughters, and this remained true despite the fact that in 1862, 16 months after Rossetti's death, Janie embarked on another drawn-out affair. Poet, explorer, political activist, celebrity, and serial womanizer William Wilfred Blunt. That's Wilfred Scowan Blunt the chap that Jamie had another affair with over several years. Apparently, his real interest in her was because he was a Rossetti worshipper and because of her connection with Rossetti. I read about him a little bit, and he's a cross between Nigel Farage and Ken Livingstone. He was a political activist, a celebrity, and a serial womanizer. But anyway, he was also an anti-imperialist. He was imprisoned in Ireland for a little bit because of his activities against the government's activities in Ireland. And he was a breeder of Arabian horses. You'll find that some of the horses that are in the country now are descended from the horses he brought over. But that's by the way. In April 1879, William Morris's firm is going well. Other things aren't, as you can tell. But he decided he got to move and bigger premises. 
And the, the firm, with the, the rest of the brotherhood, is more or less dissolved by then. They're a bit like a boy band, and they go and have their own solo careers after that. So William Morris is left in charge of the firm, and he wants to expand it and do something else with it. He buys, I'm not sure, no, maybe he rents this house in London, which is still connected with him. He changed the name to Kelmscott House himself, because I've always got confused. When I read about it, I thought, Kelmscott House, Kel Kelmscott Manor is the one in Oxfordshire, Kelmscott House is in Hammersmith. And he called it that, he changed it, the name from the retreat, because he said, people would think there was something amiss with me and your poor mama was trying to reclaim me. So he changed it to Kelmscott House in deference to the other Kelmscott. And he liked the idea that the two Kelmscots were connected by 120 miles of river, which he, he actually had some boating expeditions, a bit like Jerome K. Jerome's, with some pals going from one place to another on the Thames. They'd been living somewhere else in Chiswick, Turnham Green, for six years, and it became too small. So this was an area of respectability, but it was on the edge of disreputable London. He wrote a lot about seeing the poor people down by the river from his nice middle-class house. He altered the rooms and redecorated them, but they were also an advert for his firm and their wares. George Bernard Shaw met Morris in his old age because of the socialism, and he wrote a memoir called Morris as I Knew Him, which I sent away for. for. And this is his description of the house when he first visited some people going into Morris's house and finding it remarkably unlike their own house would say, what a queer place. Others with a more cultivated sense of beauty would say, how very nice. But neither of them would necessarily have seen what I saw at once, that there was an extraordinary discrimination at work in this magical house. Nothing in it was there because it was interesting or quaint or rare or hereditary like grandmother's or uncle's portrait. Everything that was necessary was clean and handsome. Everything else was beautiful and beautifully presented. There was an oriental carpet so lovely that it would have been a sin to walk on it. Consequently, it was not on the floor, but on the wall and halfway up the ceiling. There was no grand piano. Such a horror would have been impossible. On the supper table, there was no tablecloth. A thing common enough now among people who see that a table should be itself an ornament and not a clothes horse. But then an innovation so staggering, it cost years of domestic conflict to introduce it. I must not inflict the inventory, but throughout it all, there had reigned an artistic taste of extraordinary integrity. In the late 1870s, these were Morris's weaving years, as distinct from his dying years in the earlier part of the decade. Having made up his mind to tackle weaving, he spent 516 hours at it in his first four months. He also put a loom in his bedroom at Kelmscott House in imitation of the Icelandic farmers who used to have looms as a piece of furniture in their rooms. He was examining historic textiles at the South Kensington Museum. He built up his own collection of samples, looking hard at natural forms. He wrote to Thomas Wardle, I'm studying birds now to see if I can't get some of them into my designs. He was newly involved in the technical processes of weaving and it created new creative energy. In 1881, he signed a lease for a seven-acre site at Merton Abbey that enabled him to move all his workshops into more spacious and area surroundings in suburban South London. He and his friend, William de Morgan, set out on a quest together, which lasted months. I think William de Morgan was one of his people in the Society for the Preservation. They, that's where they met, at ancient buildings. They were looking for a suitable site, what they called their fictionary, and they enjoyed going around looking for a, a decent place they were going to set up together. Morris was delighted, actually, because he hated pollution, because he would get water tested wherever they were looking to see what the water was like, because it had to be pure for his dive. And they found, when they looked at one Lambeth site, that the pipes supplying Lambeth were unfit for human consumption, could only result in disease. He was delighted because he just knew that this is what was happening everywhere and this is what he hated. Apparently, this place is still there. Somewhere in Merton, this factionery still exists. By the early 80s, Morris and Company could offer painted glass, 
Embroidery and material for Arras Tapestry, Axminster Wilton and Kidderminster carpets, damasks for wall hangings, curtains of wool and silk, a range of products from his own workshops or produced to strict specifications. Stamped velvets, printed cloths for wall hangings, curtains, etc., wallpapers, late papers. You could furnish your home from Morrison Company, and an awful lot of Victorian, very eminent people did. After declining the honour at Oxford, Morris decided that he hated Philistinism. He had a new hostility to property rights. So this is when he turned to his socialism. He undertook a gruelling series of lectures to working men. The general theme was at first art and its relation to society. He began to despair because he was fed up of producing things for rich people. He knew that's what he was doing. He knew that all the stuff he was producing was getting him a good living and making profits, but he could see that it wasn't accessible to all these other people in the rest of Victorian society, and, and it made him furious. That's actually what it did. He started writing these lectures, and he found the composition of the lectures a very heavy trial. He found it very difficult. After writing all these reams of poetry and writing his journals and all that sort of thing did not come easily to him at all, he said... If a chap can't compose an epic poem while he's weaving a tapestry, then he'd better shut up. Now, he said, I know what I want to say, but the cursed words go to water between my fingers. In the 1880s, he's in his 50s, unsupported by most of his family and friends who think he's a crackpot. And even Edward Byrne-Jones thought he was being deceived and he was very naive in falling for the socialist theories. He started to read everything he could. He even tackled Marx, Das Kapital, in French, because there was no English translation at the time. Of his friends, only Werben Faulkner were followers. His daughter, May, was a wholehearted supporter, although his other daughter was now an invalid and a shadow of her former self. This is my imagination. I guess Janie sighed from her sofa and put up with it, regarding it as yet another of his various enthusiasms by which she was never swept away. He made a notorious declaration of revolutionary faith to an outraged middle-class audience in Oxford in November 1883, having been invited as a guest. They didn't invite the founder of the Democratic Socialist Federation because they thought he was too incendiary. So they invited Morris instead, and Morris did warn them before he at hand, but they didn't take any notice. They were horrified because basically it was a revolutionary speech he gave to these people. He joined the Democratic Federation in 1883. He disenchanted by the failure of liberals or radicals to push matters forward. He joined it because it thought it was the one body that could offer even hazily the hope of a society of real equality. He was aware he was spending his days supplying beautiful artefacts for the discriminating rich, and it wasn't good enough. He joined the League, founded by Henry Heinzmann, Hingman, a, ma a maverick if there ever was one, and it was regarded as a triumph by the socialists. They didn't know what to make of him. Handman had published a booklet written from a Marxist viewpoint and based on Das Kapital, which he didn't even mention Marx's name. Engels never forgave him. Young George Bernard Shaw remembered that we knew he kept a highly select shop in Oxford Street where he sold furniture of a rum aesthetic sort and decorated people's houses, but that was about all. They were pleasantly surprised by his attitude. He was, he was quite willing to do anything. He was going to be treated like any other member of the rank and file. Whatever was to be done, he was going to do it, whether he liked it or not. Even selling the pamphlet Justice on the streets or walking up and down between sandwich boards advertising a meeting or a rally. In June 1884, he established the Hammersmith branch of the Democratic Foundation and started a series of Sunday meetings. He was loath to go, though. He really, really didn't enjoy it. He described one of his Sundays to George Bernard Jones, who was his intimate friend. He used to write to her much more than to Janie, and their relationship was sometimes regarded as romantic, but it's not likely, it seems. They both had to put up with spouses who were unfaithful, and they were very, very loyal to each other and to their spouses. But anyway, he used to write to her more about than anyone else. And he, and he described how he hated going to these church halls and various grubby places down grubby streets to, to meet with like maybe 20 people of an evening. And, 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 and he found it difficult to find a tone to address these people with. He wanted to be able to talk at their level, but he found it difficult. Hindman's domineering personality and strident jingoism, Hindman was typically an imperialist, Morris hated imperialism. 
split the Federation in 1888. It's just typical left-wing groups splitting and splitting and splitting. The majority of the council members, including Morris and Eleanor Marx, resigned to establish a new socialist league. And Morris became the editor of its journal, The Commonweal, and de facto leader of the group, a position he neither sought nor wanted. The Socialist League, which was the next branching off, his energy was prodigious. In the years 1885 to 6, he coordinated the work for all the branches. He supervised correspondence. They had to write everything by hand, of course. Attended to the affairs of the firm, edited Commonweal, the journal, attended open-air gatherings and endless committees, and still found time to give 120 lectures, write The Pilgrims of Hope, a novel, and a translation of the Odyssey. Despite his heroic efforts, it became the story of the Federation all over again. Grubby meetings and small audiences, disagreements over tactics, opposition to the gradualist compromises of the Fabians, drifting away of people and a drift towards anarchism, which Morris could not tolerate. But there was a small victory for free speech. Many of the early socialist speakers had suffered from police harassment and prosecution for obstruction. There was a bloody Sunday, 13th of November, 1887, where 200 people were injured and 300 arrested. Morris was there and he wrote a very detailed account of it. And also in that December, he was a pallbearer at the funeral of a young man, Alfred Linnell, who died as a result of being kicked by a horse at a later demonstration. The funeral procession attracted thousands of people as it went from Soho to Mile End Road. And Morris wrote a death song for the funeral and gave a speech. i read you a little bit of speech. He's the old man of socialism now to the followers, and this is part of his speech. Most of the others were very political, but this is different. There lay a man of no particular party, a man who until a week or two ago was perfectly obscure and probably was only known to a few. Let them remember for all time this man as their brother and their friend. Their friend who lay there had had a hard life and met with a hard death. And if society had been differently constituted from what it was, that man's life might have been a delightful, a beautiful one, and a happy one to him. It was their business to try and make this earth a very beautiful and happy place. They were engaged in the most holy war, trying to prevent their rulers making this great town of London nothing more than a prison. He could not help thinking the immense procession in which they had walked that day would have had the effect of teaching a great lesson. He begged them to do their best to preserve order in going back to their homes. To Janie, it appeared that it wouldn't be a matter of time before Morris was arrested. This is Janie. My husband is not in prison yet, but I should think it would not be long before he will have the opportunity of writing the longest poem ever penned by man. Sounds like a fed-up wife to me. I do think there were major issues about the relationship. But anyway, Bloody Sunday taught Morris that small numbers of military and police could easily disperse disorganised masses. This lesson in his failure to make real contact with the masses convinced him that a great rising of the proletariat was neither imminent nor likely to succeed. The onset of gout, precursor to the diabetes that killed him, prevented him from undertaking the strenuous exertions of the past, and he recognised that he would not see socialism established in his lifetime. And so he determined to bequeath his fellows a vision of a better world, which he hoped would one day come about. News from nowhere. You've probably heard of it. It's his socialist utopian fantasy. It was probably inspired by the best-selling Looking Backward, published in 1888 by an American called Edward Bellamy, which was set in Boston in 2000. And it was his vision of a future utopia. The genre was one that had interested Morris for many years, and he read it more utopia, and he also admired Samuel Butler's Air One. So Bellamy's vision was one of a new social order in which all citizens work for and are members of the state. His picture of a rigid and centralised system in which machines were virtually masters was anathema to Morris, who declared that if they brigaded him into a regiment of workers, he would just lie on his back and kick. He strongly objected to the aridity of the communist regime serviced by a huge standing army. In his utopia, a sleeper, William Guest, having attended an interminable socialist meeting with six comrades, four of whom had strong but divergent anarchist opinions, have a discussion about the future of society on the morrow of the revolution. 
and he goes home fed up. If I could but see it, mutters the narrator as he returns to his house by the river in Hammersmith. And when Guest wakes up, it is brilliant sunshine to find a world transformed. And what you'll have to do is read it for yourself, which I have to find out about the world. I can give you some brief ideas here. It's quite an easy read, but it's quite boring in places, I have to say, because the characters aren't very characterised. They're flat, and, and it's, there's quite a lot of exposition. But what, what we have here is a world transformed in which there's no property, there are no masters, there's no forced anything. There's no education that's forced upon children's views on education was children will learn when they need to and they, they just have to have access to libraries and the means for learning. They shouldn't be forced. There's equality between the sexes and he draws a portrait of this dream woman of his who is not, as he regarded, upholstered with her clothes but in these flowing drapes that the pre-Raphaelites fancy called Ellen, who, who is sunburnt from the sun because she likes being outside and she loves nature and she loves talking about intellectual things. And she's one of his leaders on this. Eventually, they have a trip from Kelmscott in Hammersmith. And interestingly, Kelmscott in Hammersmith has got a plaque on it saying that the Socialist League was founded there. The peculiar magic of Morris's use from nowhere is its disorientation. Where are we and when is it? This is not England. It's a place of communistic freedom. Men, women and children equal, beautiful and healthy. Money, prisons, formal education or central government have been abolished. The countryside has been reclaimed from industrial squalor and pollution. In this country, momentous events are remembered to have taken place in 1952. So the revolution was supposed to have taken place in 1952. And this is the however many 50, 100 years on from then, you see. And basically, it's his vision for the future. And although you could immediately start pulling it to pieces in terms of its usefulness, it had a new slant. It took a new view of the relationship between men and also their landscapes. I do think he was one of the very early environmentalists. William Guest, the narrator, goes on a journey from... Kelmscott House in London to Kelmscott Manor in Oxford. He describes the scenes. You can recognise, if you know the Thames well yourself, you can, what they might have looked like in Victorian times and what he imagines them looking like now. And we can read it, if we know the Thames well, with our view of what the Thames looks now. And it's very interesting from that point of view. That's his socialist legacy. I think communism as it came to be would have been anathema to him. Where did he go to now? Right, he's got about 10 years left of not very good health. He founded the Kelmscott Press. I think there were about 61 books that they printed, something like that, over 60. All of them different, apparently, and very, very much prized. He gave some of them away. He often gave them away to friends and then found he hadn't got a copy himself. Amazing number of Victorian people he met, knew, influenced. And I just want to read it. I had such a laugh reading this. It's one of the funniest things I've ever read. Morris, as I knew him. George Bernard Shaw is describing meeting Hyndman and Morris together. Hyndman was the man who was so jingoistic and so authoritarian that he managed to break up the, the left-wing group that they were in. I was soon in triple conversation with Morris and Hyndman as our proletarian friends were a little out of it when we three got going. Hyndman could talk about anything with a fluency that left Morris nowhere. He was a most imposing man and seemed to have been born in a frock coat and top hat. Altogether an assuming man, quite naturally and unconsciously. But Morris was quite unassuming. He impressed by his obvious weight and quality. On this occasion he disclaimed all capacity for leadership and said he was ready to do anything he was told, presumably by Hinman as chairman of the Federation. I smiled grimly to myself at this modest offer of allegiance, measuring at sight how much heavier Morris's armament was. But Hinman accepted it at once as his due. Had Morris been accompanied by Plato, Aristotle, Gregory the Great, Dante, Thomas Aquinas, Milton and Newton, Hinman would have taken the chair as their natural leader without the slightest misgiving and before the end of the month have quarrelled with them all. But this is what he says about the difference between the two. Hindman's talk was a most entertaining performance, and both Morris and I could listen to it without being bored for a moment. 
There was, however, an important difference between his talk and Morris's. What Morris said he meant, sometimes very vehemently, and it was always worth saying. Of Hinman's most brilliant conversational performances, it was impossible to believe a single word. George Bernard Shaw talks about the fact that Morris found it very difficult to write these lectures and to give them. He wasn't a natural speaker at all. Poetry came naturally to him, design came naturally to him. Once he decided that painting wasn't good enough or architecture wasn't good enough, he gave them up. Shaw says he couldn't give up the socialism, though. Not so the matter of socialism. It was true that there were no lack of practiced and even powerful speakers in the movements, spouting Marxism, Fabianism and all the other brands. But not one of them could propagate his vision of a life to come on a happy earth and his values that went so much deeper into eternity than the surplus value of Marx. Bear in mind, you who read these casual memories, the difference in our ages. Morris was 22 before I was born, and I am now 18 years older than he was when he died. I, who was very much his junior, now he writes almost equally his senior. And with such wisdom as my years have left me, I note that as he has drawn further and further away from the hurly-burly of our personal contacts into the impersonal perspective of history, he towers greater and greater above the horizon beneath which his best advertised contemporaries have disappeared. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.